welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, founder of Be Better Media and a mom of four, passionate about human connection. Charles Brooks is a true mentor and educator who is a gift to the students that he teaches at the University of Northern Alabama. From his roots in live music with his father from the time he was eight years old, to his deep understanding of human connection through culture and music today, he is the man that the world needs to hear from on a giant scale, and I was honored to share this space with him. I am here today with um, Charles Brooks, Chuck, right? Yes, ma'am. All right. And um, man, Sean Ladig does not disappoint when he connects me with people. So, um, you know, I was connected with your wife through Sean. And then when we got to sat, sat down and talked in Franklin that day, Man, was there just a lot to talk about? I, I know. I, I mean, there we left that that day thinking, you know, we were in the car heading back down here, and and we were both like, well, we forgot to mention this, and we forgot to talk about. It. Oh, and we. I know, and we spent the whole afternoon. I mean, I think we sat there for three hours. So, thank yeah. you so much for being here today and doing a what I meant to say conversation because I think we can just we're going to uncover so much more. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So. Um, all right. So to get down to it, Charles is a, you have your doctorate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm gonna it's, read a perform- it's a performance degree. It, yes. the, doc- the doctorate in musical arts is the equivalent of a go. PhD. Um, except I have to do four recitals and uh, a dissertation. <laughs> I don't get to just write a paper and piece out. I have to present uh, pieces from the repertoire. They have to be, um, historically relevant so things from the percussion literature and also modern things uh so uh by the time i left lsu i had uh performed well not just doctoral recitals when so when i was there i was a graduate assistant for the percussion department and when i was being recruited by the guy that was there a gentleman named uh, dr michael king in uh who just recently retired from uh, indiana university of pennsylvania he uh, found out that I had other people kind of barking at my door a little bit. And so he offered me the assistantship the day I auditioned. He, I, I hit the last note of the thing I played. He's like, you're my new graduate assistant. I'm like, hey, slow down, man. I got four other auditions. I wasn't even going to go to LSU. To, if I'm being frank right now, I don't regret the decision. They turned me into a monster um, and made me become more intellectual and a better academic. But my first teacher, who is now at Belmont University in Nashville, he's the director of percussion studies there. His name is Dr. Christopher Norton. Um, He got his degree at LSU. And when we started coming up, everybody in the department called us his clones. Well, when we were artists, we didn't want to be clones and we didn't want to, you know, have that label on us and whatnot. So I was going to go anywhere but LSU. And a friend of mine who uh, at the time was doing his master's there found out that I was looking at places and he's like, Chuck, you got to you got to come to LSU, man. You got to come down here. You're, you're never going to believe. And I'm like, I'm not coming to LSU. I'm not I'm not going to do what Norton did. You know, I, I'm standing on my rock of artistic freedom or whatever. And uh, I was doing a, uh, an audition at the University of Alabama because I studied composition with a guy that used to teach there, a guy named Dr. Frederick Gosen, who was just a lovely, lovely person to be around. And um, I wound up getting to spend all the time. He was a he was an artist in residence at Austin Peay State University, and none of the composition students would go to their lessons. 
And I found out one day none of them were hanging out. So I just took my folder. It's like, uh, Dr. Gosen, do you want some lunch? Let's go hang out. And so he was teaching there. And my friend said, well, look, flying to New Orleans, because flying to Tuscaloosa is going to be expensive. And you're probably going to have to rent a car and do all kinds of weird stuff. And I'll just drive you up. And, uh, you know, I made sure it was okay with his schedule. So I flew into New Orleans and he picks me up and we get back to his place. And we're about to, you know, kind of knock it out for the night. He's like, oh, by the way, I scheduled a, a meeting with my teacher in the morning. You're going to meet him at nine. I was like, dude, I don't want to come here. He's like, just, just go talk to him. So I didn't even take any of my, my stick bag and music or anything. I just went in empty handed. And this guy from the get go was just as sweet and inviting as anyone could be, which is unlike most college professors, right? They're, they're, mm -hmm. It's like a fraternity for them. They're waiting to haze everybody. When they come through, I'm going to make them do, you know, and he wasn't like that. So um, he said, won't you play something for me? I'm like, man, I didn't bring my stuff. I'm not coming here. I've got other auditions. <laughs> so he went to his office and got uh, a set of four marimba mallets, a set of four vibe mallets, tempi mallets, and a set of snare drum sticks. And I played by memory, almost, all of the stuff that, and I'd been working on this stuff for a while because it was a doctoral audition. I, you know, I was ready. And um, I finished playing my vibe solo. And he's like, dude, you're my new graduate assistant. And I was like, well, slow down, chief. I've got other auditions. And um, when I left, we went to Alabama and that was rough for a bunch of different reasons and i won't throw no shade at them but uh i had some other auditions lined up and i got back to my house and that dude called me every wednesday night at 7 30 on the dot hey how's it going did anybody offer you money did anybody offer you money where'd you 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 know so two or three weeks into it alabama offered me a theory teaching assistantship because that's what they had available at the time um assistantships are weird because there's a, a rotation of that money that goes to different parts of the humanities and the arts and at that time one of the ways they recruited people i would have been a, a a theory assistant which was cool i dig music theory i'm a huge dork when it comes to that stuff uh but uh when he found out i was offered three other positions he unbeknownst to me recorded that audition at LSU and submitted the tape to the fellowship committee so I became a teaching fellow so I was the percussion assistant and a teaching fellow at LSU for three years so wow. when I got done I was what they call ABD status all but dissertation and okay. uh, he got a new job uh and and it's where he retired so it was the right fit for him I, I don't hold any grudges whatsoever uh, but that kind of left me in limbo at the school. Uh, so there was a year where I didn't have anybody. And because I wouldn't go away, I wouldn't just stop, uh, which they didn't understand the extenuating circumstances behind that. There are some people who we'll probably talk about today that uh, made it possible for me to endure Let's wow. just put it that way. Yeah, I was working at an instrument repair shop from 2000 on and off all through graduate school. And uh, when my dad passed away, these guys made sure that I didn't lose my proverbial business, man. I mean, they took wow. me. Working, uh, so let's take, yeah. take that back a little bit, because I know your dad has a lot to do with how you got into music. So take me back um, to a little bit about your upbringing and and how you how you broke into the music world first i i broke into the music world the day i was born basically um 
So my father was a high school band director. My biological father was a high school band director for 30 years. And um, not only did he teach, but, you know, most of us as educators have to make ends meet because teaching is a noble profession. And, you know, it's it's lucrative enough. But when you have two kids and other stuff to deal with, you fall back on things, you know, and one of the things he knew to do was to play. And he was a multi-instrumentalist. And so I, you know, this is more common now than it was then. But I, I was young. I didn't know that this wasn't what people did. I just watched my dad kill it on the trumpet, playing big bands, soloing, you know, high, playing the high notes. And, um, and then he'd pick a bass up and play in a rock band. I think well, I have a picture of him somewhere. His rock band was called Cut Glass. You know, this is like the 70s. So that was that was the. The, the move at the time. And then um, during that period, he also fostered a lot of his students. And um, what I mean by that is uh, they were always at our house. So as a young child, I was constantly surrounded by adult musicians. And no one ever went, oh, look at Chuck, goo goo gaga. Nobody ever did that. They sat down and said, all right, Chuck, we're going to do this today and play music. So I started drumming at age five, and um, by the time by the time I was thirteen, I was on the road with him playing professionally in two of his bands, and that required me not only to learn a whole bunch of music, uh, not from my era, uh, but also to uh, witness contract negotiation. Uh, professionalism, how to deal with stuff um, that people just tend to not really get exposed to until they actually do it. So as an adolescent, I was doing grown-up business and music. Did, and it, did it feel like you were in over your head or did it feel normal to you? I felt normal. I was right at home. I, I was, it was official. I, playing drums for me in the beginning was an emotional cathartic exercise uh as a child i had this horrific temper <laughs> uh, and uh i they wanted my dad tried to get me enrolled in some martial arts and uh, my, my mother was just not having it uh she, we went to one class and they were watching it and you know we got in the car and they were talking about it on the way home and she said there's no way i'm going to teach you how to hit people more that's just not going to happen um and, and it was one of those fast food karate joints not not that i don't like i did study karate for a long time after that i found uh, you know a teacher and some some people who had their act together so i've studied martial arts my whole life but um drums was my release so when it would the tea kettle would be whistling my dad would just kind of push me out in the garage and go just gonna go play the drums for a while and then that turned into well you've got this skill set that naturally and then that's the other thing i didn't find out i might have been 25 at the time i was working on my master's degree my composition professor who i still believe to this day is a genius uh we were in a lesson and he had pointed to something and said, that works, that doesn't. And he walked across the room and I took the pencil with my right hand and played it on the piano. I was like, you're talking about this? And he said, yeah, just like that. So a couple of minutes later, he does the same thing. And I pick the pencil up with my left hand and start writing and playing on the piano. He turned around and said, what are you doing? 
I was like, I, I, you told me this was bunk, so I'm getting it out of here. And he said, yeah, but you're writing with your left hand. I said, yeah, I do that sometimes. I'm ambidextrous. <laughs> that's love where, it. Yeah, that's where the drums comes in. And so following that, he goes, have you ever been tested for dyslexia? And I'm like, man, I'm a grown ass man. I don't got no dyslexia because, you know, I, I'm a child of the 70s, man. There was no ADHD. There was no special help. You know, there was just like you, you get the stick or the book, whichever one helps you learn. That's how you're going to make your grades. And so sure enough, man, I went to the local Sylvan Learning Center and got tested. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're dyslexic. My dyslexia is not where the numbers and the letters turn backwards on everybody. It's not quite the classic form. It's, a, it's an offshoot. And ambidexterity is a byproduct of that because there's no left brain, right brain guidance. It's all the whole brain. So I can write with both hands. Um, when I play sports, I, 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 could, I could throw people out from right field with my left hand at home plate. Um, I pitched right-handed for a while, and, and that was the thing. I was right-handed, and uh, one, of my, one of my little league coaches, I was walking past a, a bucket of balls. We're about to do bad in practice. He's like, Brooks, throw me one of those balls. And I didn't have my glove on yet, so I just picked it up and winged it at him, and it you know, almost took his head off. He's like, Brooks, why are you right-handed? And I'm like, I don't know. What, what's the difference? You know, I was still kind of young and I was playing drums. So I, baseball was more of a pastime at that point. And then that's when he started uh, the coach. So I go, we're going to put you at the plate left handed. We're going to mess with these pitchers. So I was a switch hitter. I became a DH or designated hitter for my, most of my teams. Um, so my my whole journey into music was kind of a natural progression. Being around adult musicians, watching my dad play watching him teach and then I, I do owe a debt of gratitude to a gentleman named Vance Horton who was his drum major for a while but um, even after that he stuck around to teach because uh, are you familiar with the drum corps international like the summertime all-star oh. marching band people yes like, absolutely like yeah. you know, just like a field full of, of bad mofos just getting down you know yep. um, at the time he was in a core called Southwind uh, which was uh, at the time was out of South Alabama. And I think they've since moved because, again, this was a long time ago. But uh, there's another group called the Blue Devils. And uh, at the time, nobody switched in the middle of a season. And Vance switched in the middle of the season and in a week learned all the music and all the drill. So he was a master at an early age. So when I would go to band camp with my dad, he would just send me off with Vance. And I just held his belt and walked around and followed him with the drum line um, and then wound up playing whatever they played and writing music with him and stuff like that. So um, I, I told uh, one of my students, the first semester I was here, some, one of my students wanted to use me for a video project because they were in a film class. And they was like, would you mind if I interviewed you? And I said, no, not at all. So they asked me, how did you get into music? And I, and I, I said, it was just grace, man. Because nobody in my father's family was musical. He was the first musician. It was, this is not like a family tradition. It was pure awesome luck that uh, he decided to play the trumpet in his earlier years and be a high school band director. And then that put me in front of a lot of people who, like I said, were adults that never kind of talked at me like a kid, but treated me kind of grown, um, which is a double-edged sword. You'll find out if you're young. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> then they expect things of you. Right. You know, uh, all the time. Yep. Um, but that's how I really got started was, was just 
shadowing all these adults that could do, you know, truly magnanimous things. And so I never felt like a fish out of water. I never felt like I'm not supposed to sing backup because I'm at a I'm at a drum set. I never felt like I wasn't supposed to be in the room with these grown ass men playing. It, you know, because my, my dad was a true showman. Um, we had uh, these sets comprised of 20 or 25 tunes and he had seven or eight of them and he would read the crowd. And if nobody was paying attention or they were eating food and drinking tea and whatnot, we just did our thing. But when we would play a slow tune, if everybody got up and started kind of slow dancing, we'd play a solo and kind of extend everything. And not to be redundant, he would turn around and this was go to another set. The number was which set you were supposed to go to. This was, okay, then the song. And then this was the, there was just hand signals. And so we would end a song and go right into another one in the other set to keep everybody engaged. And that was, you know, what we did for a very long time. So by the time I got to college, um, I'd already been playing professionally for six or seven years. And his expectation of you was he treated you the same as he treated everybody else? Or was there more like a father son bond there than he had with his other musicians? Or how did that work? There was a healthy balance. Um, he was good with me about student issues. Um, but musically, once I displayed aptitude, um, there was, I, I distinctly remember, I, I might've been 11 years old at the time I was in fifth grade. It was a beginning band and I had already smoked the whole method book. I played the whole thing. And none of the cats in the in the drum line with me were practicing, and he had to work extra with them every day. And so Christmas time, it was like I don't know the first week of Christmas break, and we're eating dinner. I was like, Daddy, I'm tired. All these drummers, they're not practicing at all. You need to do something about it. He said, All right, boy, I'll fix it for you. And I'm like, Sweet. When I come back in January, it's going to be fixed. Well, after dinner, he brought in a trumpet, shoved it in my face, and gave me the trumpet book for the First Division Band method. Said in January, you could just be a trumpet player. Those cats practice. What? I'm going to be a trumpet player. He's like, yeah, I'll help you. So every morning of Chris, that year of Christmas break, we got up and we ate breakfast. He got his trumpet and I got mine and he caught me up to the, the level of everyone else. And that semester I played trumpet. And, and so I learned not to complain when no one practices. Otherwise, I would be saddled with some kind of external uh, assignment. But what that did, though. Is, is as we moved around, because he would build programs up and then hand them off. That was something that he genuinely liked to do. So we would go to a school and he would hear everybody play. And if there was no drummers or if the level was slightly underneath what even needed to be for a high school band, he put me in the drum line. If we had a good drum line that he could work with, he would take me and put me in the weakest section. So by the time I got to college, and I was an ed major, uh, I had played, I had been on saxophone, trumpet, drums, and keyboard. That was something that he did a lot. Uh, there was one school that was really small. It was a 1A school, and there was no saxophones. There was no woodwinds. And if you, if you look at what those guys do sonically, uh, obviously the bass instruments handle all of the foundation and then you have your treble instruments well the saxophones live in the middle and that's 
more important sometimes than anything else because that gives a frame of reference to what the bass and the treble are doing. So when there were no saxophones, he would go in and take all of the saxophone parts and score them out and then have me play them on a keyboard. And we'd sit in the stands until we were big enough to get back on the field. So when I got to college as an ed major, there was brass, method, uh, brass, brass methods, set up five times fast, woodwind <laughs> methods. Um, I was certified to teach vocal because we had to take two semesters of what they call group voice, two semesters of uh, private lessons with the vocal faculty, and then perform two semesters in a sanctioned university group. So by the time I got done, I was certified to teach K through 12 instrumental and vocal. Wow. Yeah. And, and none of that seemed weird to me. I just walked yeah. around. Yeah. I, I, everybody else was bugging about, I can't play the trumpet. And I'm like, I don't know why you just buzz your lips. What's your problem? Yeah. And for, like I said, I'd already been doing it a long time. So that's really how I got in. Just, just the universe dipped me in the river of music and then spat me out. <laughs> and you have, you have followed that ever since. And so bring me to today, to today and all, what, What's the list of the instruments you can play today? Oh, man. Um, I don't do as much wind instruments because that. All right. So the muscles around here that we call an embouchure, right? Mm -hmm. Very tiny, right? And the, the uh, physiology of anatomy states that to get tiny muscles to be active and strong, um, you have to have hundreds of deliberate repetitions not blind repetitions but deliberate repetitions mm -hmm. so you have to play those every single day so by the time i got to college um drums was where i lived at uh mainly uh so any any percussion instrument that exists i can play except for probably the tabla that is the the indian hand drum and it takes a specific kind of technique uh, most hand drum techniques cover this part of the hand and the palm, uh, but tabla individualizes each finger. So again, tiny muscles. And, yeah. you know, it, it. you should study with a master, really, to be able to perform on those. So um, hand drums, I'm, I'm also very lucky. Um, all of my teachers were good about bringing in clinicians from other countries. So I've never had the privilege to go to Brazil or to Africa yet. Um, but those cats, my teachers did bring to our studio. And so when those cats showed up, I latched on, especially being the graduate assistant, because they throw the keys to the van and say, you, you're responsible for driving this pe people around. I'm like, sweet, because I'd get them in the car and be like, hey, man, what's it like to do this? And just drive and just let them infect my brain with all of their knowledge as much as I could soak up. So um, by the time I got to LSU and my teacher got his other gig, uh, they put me with the jazz teacher there, a fellow named Willis Deloney, who is, he's just ridiculous. He can walk into any symphony and play Rachmaninoff Concerto Number no. 2 and then turn around and play Swing and, and Ragtime Stride. I mean, this, this cat is stupid. So I'm writing my dissertation, and it's a jazz-based dissertation. He says, you should be studying piano with me while you do this. I'm like, sweet. Uh, until he started treating me like a piano major. So for the four years that I wrote the dissertation and, and taught, I also studied jazz piano. So that skill set favored me as well. The vibraphone, which is like a little piano, right? 
it, it has metal bars, but it also has a dampening pedal. Okay. And there's a limited range because it's a certain size uh, geographically. Um, so when I would study with him, his, his regimen for the jazz players was you had to go through these tunes every semester and there was 20 or 30 tunes he would run you through. And when you got to finals week, we had to do something called juries and juries are performance finals. So every piano major had to play seven tunes, be ready to play seven tunes. And you got to pick two from the seven when you got in and then him and the other jazz faculty, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Bill Grimes, who is uh, a bass mofo, would call the third one. And, and it's like they knew which one you didn't want them to call. It, it, even though there's seven, mm-hmm. it wasn't like there was four and you called two and they're like, he's avoiding that. They kind of just knew which ones to call to put you on the spot. So once that skill set became solidified, I wound up playing around all of Louisiana on the vibes when it was appropriate because we could go many many of the cats i played with would would get us these gigs and i would get these gigs uh, in packages for like weddings and big events where you know like i would sit at the vibes and play d do do d do do d for everybody to come walk in and, and right blushing bride and then we'd put the mallets down i'd go over and get on the kit and the reception you know play that funky music white boy and junk like that so yeah so i was walking from pocketbell over to you know yep. earth wind and fire or whatever else was happening and it was because of that early training none of that stuff and, and that was the other thing that that played well for me is i also pursued things like you know i love stevie wonder mm. as soon as i found out he was a mul- not just because he's blind and not just because he's a killer piano player but he's a multi-instrumentalist mm-hmm. like the, the album superstition is on he played everything and when I was a kid and I found that out, I just started kind of, all right, where, where can I find more of that guy? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lenny Kravitz was another popular influence. Um, I was very, I'm still very much into his early stuff yeah. up until about the Tommy Hill, Hill figure commercial that he did when he started. Uh-huh. Or I don't know if he went mainstream or if everybody kind of figured it out. Yeah. But um, all of his early stuff is a lot more raw. Like Mama yeah. said, that album man yeah plus, plus slash from guns and roses is on it so you know like that's just a gem man like every song on there's a classic so um that was one of the points where i bought a four track recorder because i knew if i wanted to be a studio musician i had to be able to do some things yeah. that they're not they're just not teaching at college and it's not because they're they're unaware of it it's because there's a specific skill set they're trying to get you to have to be in an orchestra or uh, what they call uh, an applied lessons teacher uh, or to to be a director of some sort. So in my off time, I was still soaking up. I was just pulling all these, playing with bands, whoever. What, what do you need? I'll come do it. Um, I even played some gigs on bass guitar. I, I do not advertise that I'm a bassist, but because bass is such a cool instrument, I my dad left me his bet. Well, I took the bass when he passed away because nobody was going to do anything with it. And it's not only an heirloom, but it's a classic and, and it's it's worth something. And so I had this thing at the house and I would just go call my bass friends and, and say, hey, I, will you show me some stuff? Uh, so I, I would wind up being uh, like the axe in the glass case, breaking case of emergency that when it comes to bass, that was me. And some of my friends would like, you call, call and say, hey, 
Chuck, I need you to come play some bass. I'm like, no, I don't play bass, man. I, 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 that's a hobby. Well, no, no, no. My bass player's appendix just burst. It's Friday night. We're at the casino. Everybody's booked. I need you. All right. It's, don't give me any solos because I'm not, I'm not that guy, but I'll come, I'll come thump like some quarter notes out. And, and, and because I'm a drummer and because bass and drums share a lot of the same musical responsibilities, it was easy for me to fill that spot. Well, there's like some amazing things I'm picking up on. And um, as you describe all of this, because yeah. like one, your your ability to just be curious and say yes to things that you'll that you're willing to try that a lot of people aren't willing to step out of the box and just try something new yeah. to how your creativity mixed with this discipline, because those two things don't aren't all they don't always come together right no, and you, we no, have you talked about that creative spirit and when we're creatives we just kind of want to run take the next idea pull on that a little bit but like your ability to drill down and just keep getting deeper on this path it's no wonder that you've ended up in the educational position but also with the life experience that you have because those three things like that is not common i would say it's not even even in a modern era um and 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 again this is this is no judgment this is just the nature of the beasts so to speak Mm -hmm. um if you're a jazzer everything is by the ear and that was the first thing that happened sorry that was the first thing that happened to me in louisiana i was on stage with people and be like all right uh we're gonna play this tune one two uh, hey what key is it in you'll hear it two one two blah, 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 they, and you would hear it and if you didn't hear it you didn't get called back you know oh, yeah. and uh so my ear by that time was pretty sharp um i i can hear some things every once in a while you know maybe it's a cloudy day and i'm stopped up a little bit or something i'll have to go to a keyboard and you know bang something out go okay that's that's a d and that's a g flat you know but most of the time and i don't have perfect pitch i have really good relative pitch now, now the difference between those two uh, perfect pitch are these people like beethoven that are born knowing you know you can play a b flat and they know where it's at on the staff and you don't have to tell them mm-hmm. the relative pitch happens when you spend this time that we've been talking about working and practicing and you know i've played so many tunes that if somebody plays a pitch i can be like well that sounds like the beginning of the melody from this song that's a that's an a and they're like how'd you know that and i'm like i didn't i it just kind of felt it and, and that drove people nuts but it served very well especially in my theory classes when we do ear training because everybody's at the board you know huh, huh, trying to do do ray you know trying to figure it out especially in the drum line because we don't do that stuff right and, you know, i was like do ray me five, you know I got this. I'm going to do it tomorrow. So you screw you, Brooks. You know, I mean, I, that, that was, that was a lot of what happened. And, um, you know, I, I am very, very lucky to have had these experiences. Um, and it wasn't until, I mean, you always hear about the divide between different types of music. I mean, even in the percussive world, there's this term called a specialist versus a general practitioner, right? Mm -hmm. So the specialist learns one instrument and stays their whole life on that instrument. And the only problem with that is, is like if I pick the xylophone, right, which is like the cousin of the vibraphone for everybody that doesn't play music, um, 
that's a fun instrument. I've got some recordings of me playing some high level stuff. And it's just fun. But, you know, nobody's calling me to come down to the local pub and break out my xylophone and kick some ragtime. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like nobody yeah. wants to do that unless I'm in a recital hall or, uh, you know, like, hey, come come down to the venue and play some Bach on your marimba all night long. Like that's a specialized <laughs> skill set that only works in certain arenas. So um, I learned a long time ago that if I wanted to eat, <laughs> keep some heat and some air conditioning and maybe some type of car that wasn't falling apart, stuff like that, I needed to be flexible. I needed to be ready. And I needed to be able to jump on any opportunity that was presented to me within reason. You know, you when you become professional, you, you never want to jump into something blindly and you know, make a bad showing, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, not only for yourself, but, you know, especially in your network, if you go to somebody's gig and, you know, kind of junk it all, up, uh, th they remember that they don't remember the 100 gigs before that, where you killed it. You yeah, know, okay. they, they remember the thing like the last time you were here, man, you messed all over the tunes. So, um, within reason, there is a line I won't, you know, kind of cross into like when people see me play piano, they go, Oh, could you come play our wedding? I want you to play Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. I'm like, no, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, cause yeah. I'm a jazzer. That's where yeah. I live. Um, and I, and I watched this at the Berkeley school of music. I did a summer jazz festival there on vibes and the vibe guys were just incredible at the time. I mean, they were, they were jazz cats. So like, if you didn't pick it up, they were like too bad sucker, you know, but, uh, they were running, um, multiple camps during that summer uh, the four mallet marimba drum set hand drums vibraphone classical and so i noticed that the and again i'm not this is not throwing shade at anybody but i noticed at the concert when they try to bring all of the teachers out the people who taught classical stuff for the summer that taught classical stuff and this is any school not just berkeley berkeley's a wonderful institution i, I really relish my time there uh but anytime you have a classical musician most of the time they are presented with something on a page that has very explicit instructions and they never have to make a decision even when it comes to rehearsal because the maestro says a violins this should all be a down bow here because i want this impact and trumpets the the articulation here should be t t ta t you know so so there's instruction there mm -hmm. when you get to improvisation if you haven't done any of that you can be overwhelmed and when i teach it I always start simple when I teach improvisation and, and people start to become overwhelmed because there's so many choices they could pick. I stop and I go, okay, think about when you got to campus this morning, when you were about to drive in, did you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see Brooks this morning and I'm going to say hello. And he's going to say hello back. And then I'm going to say, how are you today? And he's going to say, good. And I said, did you script that out? And I went, no. I said, so you've been improvising all morning. And, and it, it occurs to him, oh, holy crap, I have been. And then that's when I get to talk to him about every great composer in the history of music has been a good improviser. Every great musician, even the classical guys. So what I noticed on that stage is they did a, a tune that is supposed to be pretty easy for us. Like it's like one of the pa passages of rites of passage. And all of our vibe teachers who taught us improvisation and, you know, chord skill theory and application, they were having to go around the classical cats and say, okay, put your hands on these two notes. And then once they did that, they would say, what, what rhythm do I play? Because style is also different. 
you know, um, bossa nova and Brazilian music is different from Afro-Cuban, African, and Latin. Those all have very subtle differences. And if you're not aware of it, you can wind up, you know, what we do, what we call crossing rhythms, which it's not unheard of, but if you're trying to be stylistically accurate, you have to kind of know the indigenous history, how the drum developed, and every drum that that lives in any culture has a social aspect to it as well you know like um for for instance um, you know african music well uh, let me start this way in western music we count notation with ones twos threes numbers you know rabbit numerals and a system of vowels one e and a two e and a da 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 all right or depending on what system you learn one ta 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 two ta 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 stuff like that you wind up sounding like a a weird worldly gig of some sort, you know. Uh, but in Africa, it's all language. Bada, 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 that's your rhythm. Bada, what's this drum? It's called the bada. Oh, oh, okay. What's its function? Bada, 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 bada. And then it's a layered thing where you can't really put a meter on it because all the rhythms are are relatable but also discernible. So when you listen to uh, a drum circle, of masters or schooled for the lack of a better term someone who studied with one of those masters if you just listen for a while your ear will begin to pick up textures and you'll hear and you'll start to hear all those things and so there is no one two there is none of that and the same thing in indian music if you've ever watched a hindu ensemble the conductor is not going like this they're sitting at the front with their hand and they use their fingers and this is telling the orchestral players what to do what beat to do it on and uh, sometimes what note to actually play mm. so so improvisation is a big part of all music and there is a huge divide when you go into a classical mindset because you're given very explicit instructions matter of fact they don't want you to improvise they want you to try to play it as historically accurate as possible, which is important in, you know, preserving the composer's intent. Um, but not to, to not be able to improvise means that if you ever do make a mistake, you don't have the skill set to get back on track and make sure that the tune happens. Man. Wow. The, yeah. do you, the analogy for life in that one is so profound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I attribute my ability to improvise to a lot of things you know sometimes technology in the classroom goes down and i know the lecture and powerpoint's giving me the finger the computer's giving me the finger and i don't have any way for them to access their thing because the internet's down so i have to get a dry erase marker and we go analog you know mm -hmm. which is is handy because i'm able in that moment to show them you're enjoying this chat as much as I am. For more great content, courses, and lifestyle, go to BeBetterMedia.tv. No matter what, you got to make the gig. I love it. Right? Love it. So, so my ability, I mean, that, and that extends into my home, man. I mean. Yeah. So tell me um, the age of where you're teaching now and the age of the kids and, and what, um, what are the main courses that you teach? I'm, I'm at the University of North Alabama, and the, I'm in the uh, Department of Entertainment Industry. And this is relatively a new degree. 
um, in the history of academics. The department I'm in has been here since the 70s, and we're in Muscle Shoals, right? Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And uh, that's uh, everything that wasn't recorded in Motown that was R&B was recorded in Muscle Shoals. Percy Sledge, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, all of that was done here. And um, there is a really great documentary called Muscle Shoals that talks about the main recording studio here called Fame and the guy that started it uh, named Rick, Rick Hall. And he put together this monster rhythm section that wound up starting their own music studio and competing with him eventually. But um, the iconic tunes like, um, you know, Otis Redding did a cover of Hey Jude. And if you've ever listened to Hey Jude, there's that big jam at the end that everybody loves, right? Yeah. When they did it, Otis Redding had Greg Allman on guitar from the Allman Brothers. Wow. Among other many great musicians from the Muscle Shoals. And so Percy Sledge called and said, I want that rhythm section from Otis Blue. I'm going to come do that. I want those guys because I want them. And, and he, if you watch the documentary, he even says, you know, when I made the phone call, I said I wanted the black musicians because he wanted he wanted to give you know black people more work uh and give them more notice and and that that's something that he wanted but what he didn't know is all those cats were white man every last one of them so um when you get down to muscle shoals it's it's like a tiny bubble where no one is paying attention to what you look like they're paying attention to what you play and how you play it and whether or not you treat everybody with respect uh, and dignity and things like that, which is, pardon me for saying so, uncharacteristic of the stereotypical idea of South, right? Mm -hmm. South are always racist and they chew backer and spit everywhere, you know, like, and, and some of them fellas and people are around, but most of us are scholars too, you know? So yeah. this place is rich with music history. So most of the students I teach are the traditional, I'm coming from high school, and I, you know, some of them know exactly what they want to be. I want to be an audio engineer. So when we get them, we've got uh, two great studios that kind of graduate in complexity where, you know, we, we start them out young and then we get them to senior. Um, and then uh, because we have relationships with all those studios and muscle shows, we get them internships and, and they go off and get work. Many of them are working right now while they're in school. Um, every once in a while, I get non-traditional students. Um, people who have retired that kind of just want to take some leisure courses will sign up and take these. So I, I actually have, uh, I mean, 18 to whatever. Um, now when I was teaching privately, you know, and then that'll probably happen. I've only been here a year, but um, you know, when I was established in Louisiana, I had students at music schools that were, I had a four-year-old once. I, I mean, and, and nobody thinks you can teach four-year-olds and you can't, if you don't know how to be pliable, okay? Because I would get this little fella in my music room because I was teaching piano, guitar, bass, and drum set to a multitude of, of kids of varying ages, um, helping them get into gifted programs or preparing for scholarships to go to college, things like that. I would bring him in my room and shut the door and I'd say, okay, what did you do this week? He was, I played the drums. I was like, sweet, show me what you did. And he would just go over and just, you know, beat the ever loving crap out of the drums and i would ever try to make him do anything the first thing i would do is what's that one with your foot on it 
the kick drum. Yep. Very good. Now what's the other one? And so we would just learn the names and, you know, halfway through that, he would throw the sticks down and pick the guitar up. So I just let him kind of dictate everything. And by the time I was done with him, he was playing multiple instruments because nobody told him it was hard. Oh my gosh. I am such a believer in that principle. I've, I've seen the same thing in sports. You know, and they say, oh, why, how, why would you teach that to, why would you teach a jump serve to a 12 year old? Well, because they don't know, they don't know it's hard. They're going to, they're, they're used to not knowing and it's okay. I've seen the same thing in my kids from one to four, like one and two knew, like they didn't know. But when you're the fourth one and you're watching, you think that first one always knew what they were doing. And you're like, by the way, they got like 500 hours on you, you know, or 10,000. But it's an interesting uh, the hearing you say that makes so much sense because they don't know it's hard. Well, that, that was something, again, my teaching lineage, all yeah. of my professors, I had a really great conducting professor, Dr. John Carmichael, when I was at Western Kentucky. And man, he used to just bust our balls, man. He was a ball buster. And, mm-hmm. and we used to think he was just mean. And it, it wasn't until I became like a senior or junior that I really started to figure out, oh, he's not he's not mean. He just wants it to be right. You know, and one of his things was if you tell kids stuff is hard, then it will be. And, and then I started to do some of my own research and you take some ed psychology if you're going to be an education major. And then you find out most people are born with perfect pitch. They tell you it's a DNA thing that happens once in a million. And there is some truth to that. But the next time you're around a three or four year old, just go, no, 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 no. They'll sing it back to you with the same pitch and the same rhythm and the same tempo that you sang it. Yeah. And never realize they're doing music. It's not until uh, we hit puberty and we become aware of physical changes. Mm-hmm. I'm too tall now or I'm gaining weight or my hair's doing something weird. And, and then adults, we have to be better people, okay? We start saying things uh, in, in sarcastic tones or mean tones or our word choices, which is, again, something I learned from a gentleman at a drum clinic when I, when I was in, um, I'm a, a member of the Percussive Arts Society. It's our international guild. And every year they do an international convention in some big city. And I watched this guy who was an African drummer, I want to say Baba Atunde, um, who's not, he, I mean, I think he passed away right after this clinic, but uh, we were supposed to be in there for 50 minutes and nobody would leave the room. We were in there for three hours listening to this dude play and talk. And his ensemble was just incredible. We never got tired of hearing the drum ever because it wasn't tiring. He had us all up learning dances and, you know, because that's a large part of the, the African culture is there's a, a drum that plays a rhythm that's connected to a dance and they all have the same name. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of it, before he left, he said, teachers, parents, everybody who deals with kids, don't let any one kid call themselves stupid because that's a thing we do. When we make a mistake. Oh, I was being stupid. And even in that moment, if you do that enough subliminally, you will begin to believe you are not intelligent enough to achieve. So we teach our kids that they can't before they ever get a chance to try. So that's something that I took with me. And that's when you logged in today, you said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm excellent. How are you? That's his. I stole that from him. And he, and he, and that was the last thing he said that day. He said, you know, if, if I wake up and I breathe and I can play a drum, 
I have no worries. And that blew me away because I'd never heard anybody speak that way. And, and positivity is infectious, just as negativity is. And, and that was something I started doing. I went back from that clinic. I was changed. I was inspired. I practiced. You know, that was in November. So Thanksgiving to January, I was just, you know, in the practice room doing my thing. And so anytime I saw somebody, even if I was in a crappy mood, how are you doing? I was like, I'm excellent. How are you today? And I noticed that when I said that, that elicited a much more positive response. When I was at Austin P, there were total maybe 3,000 students at a four-year institution. The teacher-to-student ratio was three to one. I had everybody to myself. I had all of the resources to myself. And I spent all of my time in the music building. I spent, and this is, this is without fabrication, 12 to 16 hours a day practicing. I had lost my father the week before I started my master's degree. And as a young man who did not have some other emotional things under control, I dove into drums. Because like I told you, when I was a kid and my emotions ran hot, I needed to dive at the drum set. Well, now I'm earning a master's degree and I've got all these resources. I should dive into that. And that's what I did for two solid years. So me and the facilities people were the only cats in the building. And I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. I haven't in over 20 years. But at the time, I smoked cigarettes. And so I'd, I set a timer and I would practice for an hour and a half and I'd go out and take 15 minutes of a break. And I would go out and have a cigarette with the janitors. And um, there were two ladies there. They would come out every night. And sometimes I'd bum from them. Sometimes they'd bum from me. And every time I saw them, I, how are you doing? I was like, I'm great. How are you today? I'm excellent. I'm awesome. Some kind of positive response. Because I did feel better when I played. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing one of them one night. And she stopped me. She said, I want you to know something. I said, what's that? She said, every time we see you, you say you're doing great. Regardless of what's going on. And I said, well, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm playing drums for a living. What's better than doing what I love to do? And she said, well, I want you to know that's infected all of us. And, and in that moment, I was like, oh, man, this is what this cat was talking about. It really does matter. It's not just in your teaching. It's everywhere. Right. And learning to really appreciate and have gratitude for the simple and the ability, the, the, the just being able to follow your purpose and oh. having gratitude for that is like, and really, that's, that's the foundation. That's the foundation oh, of happiness. And you're right. You're raising the vibration by speaking that and I'm such a believer (laughs) and it's not fake I don't like I am not a toxic positivity there's all these words out there now but there's never been a day in my life where I haven't expected things to get better even in the scariest moments and I I'm grateful for that and it's it's a chicken or the egg are you grateful for that being born with that attitude or did you that attitude come because you found gratitude for the simple things. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, when you go through, I, my family, my, my parents loved me. I have no doubt about that, but, uh, my family life was tumultuous when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and they wound up getting a divorce like many Americans wind up doing. And I remember I was 20 years old the night, my brother, I was my second year of college. I was living in an apartment by myself for the first time. And he gave me a call and said, Hey, mom and dad just got divorced. It's like, what's talking about man. Cause they were very good at showing everybody warden June Cleaver. Like everything is cool. Everything is cool. And nothing was cool. You know, all my dad wanted to do was play music. And my mom had other things that she, she wanted for herself. 
which I respect both of them for that. But at some point they realized their, their ways had to part. So when you've been taught, there's this facade and now that facade is broken. Everything they taught you in that moment is complete bullshit. At least you feel that way. And so that, that was when I began to kind of, again, retreat into drums and music and try to figure out, okay, what, where do I fit into all of this? And um, one of my dad's best friends, this gentleman named Sonny Crone, who used to teach at Warren East High School up in Kentucky. I was a senior when I met him in high school. And um, when I graduated, my dad talked him into letting me teach his drumline, which if, if you talk to drumline folks, that's very out of pocket. They want somebody who's been in college for a few years that has some experience and some success. But because he knew my dad and he had seen me play and he didn't really have a lot of money, you know, um, arts departments don't get a lot of funding, you know, especially at this point in this part of the city. Um, he was able to pay me more money than I thought I could make at the time and still have a budget. And so uh, his drumline started winning trophies. And again, I didn't think that was out of pocket. I just expected success. And if we didn't get it, the success to me wasn't a trophy. It was like, did you do your level best? Did you leave it all? You know, I don't want to use a, a, a tired cliche, but did you leave it all on the field? And if the answer is yes, then you want because there are people that didn't do that today. It doesn't matter if you get a trophy. So that's how I taught everybody. I was just, and I was a little bit, and this is probably being generous <laughs> to me, but I was rough as an 18-year-old. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd been in schools where I was the only white cat when you paddled kids, okay? Yeah. And, and my dad never, ever wanted to hit anybody. He was the artistic. My mama was the one that would jack me up if I got out of place, okay? So the roles were kind of reversed in my house. Okay. And so he would do everything to keep from trying, but you know, at some point, if you want to keep your job and you want to be in the administrators, you have to do this thing. So, you know, anybody he paddled came and found me at recess to get payback. And, and that was at every school, not, not just anything racially driven. Um, but that, that happened my whole life because I was a teacher's kid. If he hit them with a paddle, I had a fight at recess. I just got used to it at some point. Which, by the way, I mean, I had a Marine as a as a principal in elementary school, and I remember them oh, standing. Wow. I remember him at lunchtime. He would walk around with the paddle in his hand. I mean, can you nowadays that would not fly? Are you kidding but me? It was either you got the Texas jelly bean or he had the paddle. And <laughs> there was this very strict black and white line of knowing which side you were on. Yep. And we're so far away from that. But in, in the way that schools are run today, but there is something like the story you're telling. I mean, one, there's a huge repercussion in being the instructors, the teacher's kid because of what you're describing, but also just like the way that the world has changed. And so many of the stories that we talked about, you had been in these positions where, you know, nowadays we're putting everybody into these segments in society and we're saying you're this and you're this and you're this, you know, this race or this sexuality or this gender. And so many of the places that you had been, this is what I noticed in our conversation back in Franklin was that you were able to see the world in non 
it, just very non-binary, like just not in a in a, a place where labels mattered. And I, I want to know, like, what from your perspective do you think, you know, all the things that you've learned coming up in that environment, how could the world apply those today? Oh, I know it's a really big question, but. But yeah, but it's important, though, um, because I. I, I feel like right now it's the most important thing that we have to discuss as a uh, society. So when I was younger, I told you I was around musicians and most all of them were from various walks of life. Uh, we also sponsored uh, what they call a foreign exchange student. So for two years, there was a Vietnamese girl that lived with us and went to high school I mean, I can't speak in a Vietnamese, but I learned about her culture because she lived with us. You know, what's that? What are you cooking? You know, like, or why, why are you doing that right now? What, what's that about? And, and my parents never, uh, they never put a shroud up over that. They would allow me to see that. Um, you know, uh, I was around other cultures my whole life. And then when you do learn music on some level and you're able to identify with a certain part of it, that leads to a series of connections where you realize um, we're all not really that different, but we all have this fluidity to us because the, the human being as a, as a species uh is is not binary it, it is it's fluid on some level um and, and you begin to see those things uh and, and one of the ways i equate this like if you if you get any degree at the collegiate level you have to take one of two classes if not both music appreciation and art appreciation which everybody goes man i hate these classes because they don't want to go learn you know that that stuff i'm here to be an engineer i don't know what this is going to do but here's the thing if you can learn how to look at a piece of art critique it intellectually emotionally and technically then you are able to understand what the composer endured to make that piece of art and if you can do that, then you learn how to put yourself in other people's shoes. And if the teacher is doing their job, the students take that lesson into life and then they can see that home conflict, professional conflict, interpersonal conflict is not always a negative device. It's a constructive, positive interaction that you grow from. Um, I'm actually writing an article right now. I'm trying to get submitted uh, to some some you know collegiate uh publications and part of it is is taking aim at that and it's gonna piss a lot of people off if i'm honest if if it does get published it you know because i take aim at everybody politicians educators parents everybody's got to step their game up in this because you know um and, and and again i don't begrudge anybody in any other field if if you get a scholarship to go play football man go play football learn everything about football uh, whatever your deal is, learn it and learn it well and be able to translate it to what you do in life. And if you can do that, you learn how to see other perspectives. So that was one of the first things I was taught 
I, I remember the first day I came home after I had been trounced pretty hard. <laughs> you know, I had made a couple of uh, semi-racist accusations as a kid. There were, there were no slurs. That didn't get passed around at my house. It wasn't anything like that. But I did equate some of those kids with violence because that's what I saw from them. In which case, my parents took the time to stop me and say, look, 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 you have to understand something. They're not mad because you're white or black. They're mad because somebody hit them with a stick. And because you're the teacher's kid, that's the easiest equation for them in the moment because anger has taken over to get that feeling out. And that's when I began to learn how to properly deal with that idea is that just because somebody's mad doesn't mean it's about me. You know, I, it, it, I tend to allow people their space as much as I can within reason. I can't let anybody disrupt a class or, you know, uh, I, I certainly do not tolerate that kind of junk when I'm teaching. I've, I've, I've politely excused students before, you know, at the collegiate level, but um, that that's something that I learned at a very early age that stuck with me. Yeah, that's really powerful. Cause I think there's, there's such a, lesson to be learned in in having standards and and boundaries and still having this this calm resolve of letting people being comfortable enough with yourself that you can let other people be who they are and that's a large part of it yeah and that very much comes across with you i mean your, your your wealth of knowledge is so vast and so deep that I mean, I hope you write a book someday or <laughs> because <laughs> I, your stories I have, I are have, incredible. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, to get tenure, you have to be published and there's a lot of, you know, you have to have diversity in your portfolio. And I, I have a couple of method books that I've written that we use and um, I've contributed. You know, when you write a dissertation and you get your chops busted, you know, like that, you become a very good writer. Um, and, uh, as a result, uh, you, you start to see some things, you know, you start to see the cracks in the system. You start to see where we're, we're leaving off. And and I'll, I'll tell you, man, as, as a college professor, I get students who were left behind somewhere, whether it be because politics kept money from them or, you know, uh, one of the things I hated when I got to school is you go in your first day, you're a freshman, right? Your band director was your inspiration or uh, somebody at church taught you to play the organ and you want to be a performance major. And you walk in and they say, that's awesome, but you're probably not going to make it. You should probably get an ed degree to fall back on. You should be a double major. And this is the hustle that happens at the academic level, okay? And (laughs) almost all schools have this component to them where they get students to be a double ed and performance major and Mm -hmm. because they use the word you need something to fall back on that there's a negativity that exists within that phrase so and it's not just musicians it's everybody i i had a high school math teacher who hated people hated math I, i hated everybody and made us hate him and i overheard him one day i was hanging out with my dad at one of the teachers functions and i overheard him say you know, I really wanted to be a GM designing, designing engines. And like he wanted to go be an engineer, but somebody told him he couldn't. And so to fall back on something like teaching seventh grade math wasn't an aspiring goal to him. It was a failure 
mm-hmm. and, and what he should have and, and at least looking back now with the the experience I have I, I felt like if he wanted to to be that he should have tried it and when I teach people I don't say the word you need something to fall back on I say you need options because sometimes everything that you think of is not going to exactly add up the way you think it's going to add up, which means you need to have a B and a C and a D. All of those are equal in the spectrum. But if you say you need something to fall back on, you know, like it's. it's yeah, the connotations, you're going to fail. Right. Yeah, right. You're yeah, just, and that'll carve that'll carve that pathway in your brain. And and then all of a sudden, you know how fast life goes. Right. We know when we turn back and we look back and we go oh, I saw that, but I didn't, I didn't take that road. Yeah. And sometimes you come back to it, but sometimes, you know, you don't. Sometimes you don't. And and most of those people wind up teaching high school, Mm -hmm. which is where it's the most important because that's the developmental. uh, When I was doing my ed degree, we had to study all these psychology business and I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was a, a French psychologist who did a, a number of interviews and experiments and realized there's two puberties in life over the span of, of life cycle. One of them is, is physiological, right? You're 13, and by the time you come back to school, you're six feet tall or your voice is doing this, you know, whatever's happening. Um, and then there's a psychological puberty that happens in your early 20s as an early adult, where when you do get out into the world, go to college or travel, you realize, well, everybody doesn't do this the way I do it. And that's OK. Matter of fact, some of this is better than the stuff I've been exposed to. Holy cow. And when I realized that I was in the middle of my psychological puberty and like my brain, like metaphysically or metaphor, you know, I, yeah. I just, holy cow, uh, I'm going through some stuff I should probably pay attention to right now. And I feel like I could have done better in a lot of, like you said, you, you look back and you're like, oh man, I stepped in it right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, that's, that's part of the reason I call my podcast what I meant to say, because there's so many times in life where you do look back and you're like, okay, how would I have treated that a little different or done something different? But it also, I've learned that, you know, cutting yourself that slack and and giving yourself the grace to say, I did the best I could at the time, but my job is to now know more. And so to never stop asking those questions, you know, that is what to me perpetuates that grace that allows you to keep learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, um, the, the more experience I get, um, and I'm able to take advantage of opportunities. Um, I learned that lesson all over many times. And sometimes I'm like, Oh man, I learned this already. So let's make it really stick. Or I I get home and I'm thinking about today and I'm like, man, today was, was really good for a lot of different reasons. So yeah. And I mean, given all the the places and things that you've learned in your life, this is like one of my favorite questions to ask to anybody that comes on the show. But if you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Uh, Probably to take it easier on myself. Um, When I began to display an aptitude, big things were expected of me. And I, I think that is important to not really set lofty goals, but have high standards for realistic goals, right? So I just, I remember 
even to this day, if I'm being frank with you, I still put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect. And, you know, if you read enough philosophy, you realize perfect doesn't exist, you know. Uh, so I if I could have if I could have spoken to myself, you know, at 13, one of the things I would say is like, man, you have to cut yourself more slack. You're doing the best you can. You're 13. You don't have the tools to be equipped but but sometimes we're expected to and, and transversely as as i began to progress all of my teachers treated me differently than they did everybody else which used to just get under my skin man because they would expect me to, to because i expected things of myself they expected those things which in my private study was m m very beneficial but when you're in a group of people who are not towing the line at all and it doesn't look like anything's being done. There's a huge amount of frustration that builds where either a, you become kind of soured to the concept or the activity or B you take it upon yourself to be the catalyst. And that is a very tricky thing to do because if you interject at the wrong time, you could actually send somebody down the wrong path. If you interject incorrectly with the wrong energy or you know too much negativity or dominance yeah because we shouldn't really strive to dominate each other that's something else that i learned um when i was at lsu i had a student um and you know again i was much better as a doctoral candidate than i was as a master's undergrad so forth but i still had a lot to learn and um one of the students I dealt with, if I said anything in a firm tone, blank look came over their face and there was a practice of like looking to your ear to pretend like they were making eye contact. Right. Mm -hmm. And so after an interaction, one of the other students came over and said, look, man, uh, last year, this cat had an interaction with somebody who was kind of a bully. So anytime that you say something, he snaps back into that. And I'm like, oh, okay um tell him to come to my office so he comes to my office and sits down and i start trying to to really talk to him and not at him which i had been doing and he started you know kind of looking away from me and i said you're doing it right now man you're not here in the room and i'm i'm trying to explain to you that the only way i become a better teacher is if you become a better student so when we're doing work yeah, man, I'm a no-nonsense kind of cat. I don't have a lot of time for frivolities. We have a deadline. There's people over at another location waiting for us to bring equipment. Uh, there's a band director or a, a maestro or a, some type of conductor type of person who is kind of beating on the stand saying, where's my drums, where's my, you know, that kind of stuff. So we, we have deadlines. Mm -hmm. But when it's over with, man, we can go get some chicken nuggets and talk about basketball. That's cool. I'm going to yeah. be your best buddy. Uh, so, so please don't take what I say in rehearsal in the personal life and man that cat became one of my best students uh on on their senior recital they wound up playing a bunch of vibraphone which by the way a lot of cats don't do even when they study in a percussion group because it requires some dexterity like at the drum set because you got to touch the pedal and if you've got four mallets you have to be able to make them all go in different directions at the same time and you're and you're so busy learning like the pedagogy of education and and trying to learn okay yeah. you know that's just one thing that they don't have to do so they don't 
So I was able to 180 that cat the minute that I was like, look, man, I'm, I'm just trying to make it good. As soon as he knew I wanted to make things good, nothing I said got under his skin. And I believe that person went on to be a lot tougher as a result of it. And not, not because I waved a magic wand or did anything, you know, uh, completely magical, but because I took the time to talk to him as a person. Yeah, that's real connection. That's not power over, it's power with and helping somebody to see what the, what the is within them and allowing that to come out. And I think that's such an, um, not every educator has that figured out and has that gift. And it's amazing to see what it does when, the, when an educator does, because I think it happens at every level of education, but to see what you're doing with these kids and helping them to believe in themselves is something that I am so passionate about because I think what we give generation to generation and, and it's not always top down. It, as you know, well, it goes both ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about what you get to do every day. Yeah. Well said. I, you know, that power over power with that, that's a very, very excellent way to put that because I mean, even when you, even when you approach a classroom or any kind of teaching moment with that mindset, there's other mindsets by those students that are, are reinforced by other people that they bring in where you have to go, no, no, that's, that's not what's happening right now. Right. Let's just, yeah. But you let's never just, know. Yeah. It's that old paradigm of you never know what's what someone's going through. Right. I oh, mean, we, no. we're compartmentalizing oh. a lot when we're having a conversation or we're in a classroom or. Yeah. When, when I, when I used to teach, I don't really do marching band in the summers anymore. And it's not because I don't like it or love it. Um, I just don't have to, because I have a really good gig and I have uh, for a while, but um, most college music students will make some extra bread teaching band camps in the summer and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I remember one place I taught, um, I was I wasn't doing the drum line on the field. That's called battery. I was uh, contracted to do what they call the pit or the front mm-hmm. line, which is all keys, right? That's what okay. that's that's what I was hired to do. And mo- <laughs> most band directors in marching band make all of their oboe and woodwind students pick up a mallet and a cymbal because you just can't hear those on a field, right? And it's not appropriate to put those on the field. So there was there was one year I had nine ninth grade girls. And the first day I walked in, I said, okay, who here has ever touched a drum? None of them. None of them had ever touched a drum. So the, the physical facility was easy for me. You know, like, hold a stick, do this with your wrist, move it around. Okay, because they could all read music. You know, it wasn't any of that. The thing that happened with them was that if they made a mistake, they locked up and froze because somebody was about to bark at them. And, you know, uh, this particular instance, I had worked with them for a whole week and kind of gotten that out of us. Look, mistakes are going to happen. They're just going to be there. It doesn't matter if you, you play this hundreds, hundreds of times in the heat of the moment, you might miss that B flat or you might miss that rhythm. But the most important thing to do is to get 
back into the groove, play the music, make the whole thing, because people aren't going to remember that one tiny mistake unless you just derail the train, make a face and mm-hmm. turn it into a Shakespeare drama. And the, the particular person I was working for at the time undid all of that in about five minutes when we got to the full band, because one of the young ladies made a mistake and she didn't freeze up. She pushed right on through it. And I was like, yeah, we're making progress. And next thing I know, there's like this militaristic barking going on. And, you know, to anybody who's in ninth grade, everybody is huge and loud. And if, if you have a little bit of bass in your voice, it terrifies them. Yeah, especially, scary. especially people who come from physical, mental or psychological trauma, which all of these students were dealing with simultaneously. And so I intervened politely and, and told, you know, I'll deal with it. And I took the student and I said, just go to the restroom, take your time. She was torn up. And so eventually uh, when she came out, I took her back in. I was like, look, you didn't do anything wrong. Okay. You are just fine. All right. You played that a hundred times for me today. I know you can do it. So you don't need to worry about anything. And when I went to talk to the person in question, I was flabbergasted to find out that they were still on that thing, man. You got to get these. And I was like, hey, you need to cool out or I'm going to get in my truck and go home, man. And you can be done with this because I'm not going to I'm not going to yell at people who are smaller than me that have no way to defend themselves. That's just not honorable, in my opinion, you know, because there's a there's a big difference between tough love and and just out and out bashing, I believe. Yeah, I would. I totally agree with that. And like, you know, your your gentle spirit mixed with the wisdom that you have is just it's magic for a kid who wants to learn. So, like, I am so honored to sit here and get all of these stories from you. And I know. There's so many more, but I want people to know where they can find you um, and check out your music and, you know, what you have going on, because it's a lot. It's like worthy of another podcast. (laughs) So, but where can people find you? Uh, The easiest place is at thecharlesbrooks.com. That has links to everything, my YouTube pages, um, all of my social media um, Facebook is Charles Brooks music. And, and I have like, I have, uh, like my band, if you want to call it, that is not really a set, uh, roster. So I call it the Charles Brooks collective because it's a bunch of different people, uh, from all the way in Louisiana to up in Louisville, Kentucky. It's just a, like back in the summer, we did a WC handy jazz thing. And these cats I used to play with, who wound up back where we were uh i brought them down you know so they were part of the collective um so there's those pages um uh one of the guys i used to play with used to call me c breezington um i have like these iterations of my name that exists in in the world outside of education so most of my social media handle is at c breezington okay yeah uh any any of the well We'll make sure we get all of that in the show notes. And I, I have checked out your website and there's just there's oh, wow. a link. It's a link to so many cool places. So we'll make sure it all goes in there because yeah. you really built that, by the way. Did she really? So your wife's genius. And I can't wait to have um, a podcast with her, with her, her book coming and oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. That's, her poetry book is beautiful. 
And like I said, I mean, the way we started with, like I said, Sean Ladig has never turned, he has never steered me wrong. And you guys are a gift from one afternoon that I know, like we will know each other for a very long time and keep having these conversations because they matter. And you, you guys are both true connectors and I'm really, really grateful to know you. So thank you so much. That means a lot. Uh, it, you know, um, when, when you're put together with people who are like that and you recognize it, it goes wholly unnoticed in some respects, which is one of the things I can say about my current gig. Everybody that I work with is power with, not power over. And when I do something that is generous, um, it's noted on some level. Oh, that's be, tremendous. Thank, thank you, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> You know, which is simple to do that we don't do all the time, all the way to um, a, a recommendation or some type of, you know, citation on some level. So, I, again, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm very lo- I mean, I have worked hard. There's no doubt about that. And I'm still working hard and yeah. I'm still I'm still teaching myself, but I'm very lucky. There's there's like a little bit of luck mixed in with that. So, you know, um, uh, recently uh, for the YouTube page, because uh, we used to do Friday night vibes during the during COVID. That was something, okay. man, Louisianans, they have to have music. It's like air for them. Yeah. There's no other, I mean, everybody loves music. I'm not saying they don't. So if you live in a different state, you know, don't, don't come at me with pitch. No harm, no foul. We got right? you. But, but yeah. there's, there's something in the DNA there that when they, when they're born, it's like, boom, 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 boom. And, and yep, it's just, yep. it's just with them. And I've never been it with the exception of muscle shoals. I've never been in another place where you could play anything on the stage heavy metal speed metal country rock and roll jazz uh gospel music and if you look like you're having a good time they're having a good time you know what i mean so in march uh of 2020 uh my boss came and said you we all have to go home go home right now we're shutting it down i was like okay that the cdc ah, this will be fine this is like sars or whatever you know we'll be great two weeks went by and we were not great yeah we were not good at all and then the lockdown on non-essential jobs started happening. And in Louisiana, it's a hospitality state. So servers, uh, you know, tourism, all of that stuff shut down. And I just I noticed one day on social media, on multiple platforms, people were bugging, man. They were just like, I need some music. So uh, we set up in the kitchen and we got lights and whatever we could get. And at eight o'clock every Friday, I'd go live and just play some music. And in the beginning, I would run through some jazz standards from things that I play. Pardon me, because that, you know, jazz is big down there. It's where it was born. So there was a lot of people that, that tuned into that. And eventually um, I would take things like I, I play a little guitar in my off time or things that I played in cover bands. I would transpose that and play my version of it on the vibes and uh, I started finding out that um, well, we had a lot of people tuning into the live broadcasts. We had maybe a thousand views in the first four weeks. Once everything started to open up and people were able to be active, the view count started going down, but people were still paying attention. Some yeah. of my friends would be like, man, are you doing Friday Night Vibes tonight? That's the only way my kid will go to sleep. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, no, we just turned it on low. We put it in the room and man, you play them right into La La Land. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and so so that that extended uh we did 55 of those. 
and I'm currently in the process of running them through some software and chopping them up into the bits. Uh, and so there's a lot of that on the YouTube page. Um, there's a lot of stuff I've done here recently on the YouTube page. Um, and then of course, like on social media, you can find all of these, they're all over the place. So I love it. I love it. And it really gets to the heart of why, um, when we first talked and why I wanted to do this with you is, you know, through everything we've been through in the last couple of years, and obviously over (laughs) the course of humanity, music has always been healing music to me. I mean, I can give you a thousand reasons why it's been in my life. My favorite thing is for me to be cooking dinner and have my son playing that piano. There is nowhere I'd rather be. That's and awesome. so truthfully, like music is such a has so much healing power in this world. And I thank you for being such an amazing role model in that in that arena. So well, thank thank you for noticing. Yeah, you know what I mean? I, I mean. Like I said, the people I work with right now really do value what I do on a certain level uh, that I've I've not been privileged enough to experience. I think I had to deal with those things I talked about earlier and some stuff we didn't talk about to really know. Okay, you've you've got a good thing going. Great. <laughs> That's so good to hear. Stepping it, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, shout out to those guys for giving you a great place to do your thing and for oh, yeah. ability to to connect with these younger younger musicians and future producers and all. You know, it's it's amazing what you're doing. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. And I would love to do it again. And we'll unpack some more of these stories. Yeah, we can do part two whenever you want, man. All right. I'm happy so to. Thank good. you for having me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you so much for listening to What I Meant to Say. If you enjoyed this conversation, you know what to do. Subscribe, rate, review. And for more great content, courses, and lifestyle, go to BeBetterMedia.tv.